Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Francisca Rabello, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. <laughs> Thank you. And I, and I sincerely apologise for that uh, terrible pronunciation. It's my Australian uh, twang mixed with a very poor pronunciation of anything uh, Portuguese. Uh, but welcome to our show, nonetheless. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks and, for having me. And so we, I mean, this is an unusual podcast, Brad. So let's say, I mean, you're at home by yourself with your dogs, <laughs> as per usual. Yeah. But whereabouts are you calling from, Francisca? Did I get that right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm actually, I actually come from Portugal, Porto, mm. but I'm currently in the UK, uh, in Exeter, which is south, because, yeah, as you know, I can't enter Australia at the moment. So I'm, I'm completing my PhD here. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this PhD, which we'll come to, is actually a joint PhD between the University of Queensland and the University of Exeter. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it's a joint program uh, where we basically share knowledge between the two institutions and we have to spend time at both of them. So I've already been in Brisbane and mm. then I came to the UK and then got stuck here because of the pandemic. So that's where I'm currently. What, yeah. what, what pandemic are you I mean, there's not a <laughs> pandemic going on. What are you talking about? I know, right? <laughs> And it's interesting, like the reason the reason actually uh, we've set this podcast chat up because I actually saw one uh, an article that has uh, referenced your recent research, which is very interesting, and it was actually published in uh, I think a University of Queensland uh, news article, and there's been a couple articles in various Brisbane uh, local newspapers. But we'll come to that research in a sec. But uh, but obviously you're calling from Exeter, but Jeremy, you're you, where are you calling from? Thought you never asked, Brad. <laughs> so I'm calling from my my lounge and 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 my hometown of, of Wanaka, New Zealand. And just for you guys on Zoom, like the, the setup <laughs> um, wasn't very organised and lost the computer. So like, I'm just home, having done 14 days in quarantine uh, in Auckland, and I arrived home to my my lovely mother literally four days ago, um, which has been a b- bit of a whirlwind. You know, for our listeners, my uh, Candy, she's a, an avid listener. She um, listens along to nearly every episode. And unfortunately, she's not that well. So I've come home to, um, you know, to make her laugh. So, no, I'm in uh, also COVID land and it's also pretty weird. We're, we're just at level one 
down here in, in the South Island, New Zealand. So level one for anyone that's not listening means you can do whatever you want. You just have to be aware of COVID. <laughs> so I don't really understand what that means. <laughs> um, anyway, so no, no, it's a will. And I've never seen Brad for sort of uh, a week or so. So anyway, it's not about me. It's not about you, Brad. No. And, and it is certainly about it for Siska. But, um, and we're going to talk to her about her PhD research. But this is actually, uh, you're on your, I think, your third degree now. Is that right, Francisca? So you've done a... I guess a bachelor or a graduate degree in aquatic sciences a few years ago. Then you've gone on to do a master's degree in marine biology. And now you're sort of doing this PhD research around microplastic contamination in seafood. So where does all this interest in uh, marine science come from? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, so I think I just, uh, you know, when, when you're 18 and you have to choose a pathway for your life, I think I just went for aquatic sciences because it sounded fun. But then on my last year, I discovered that I really liked marine biology and especially the toxicology field, which is basically you study the effect of any stressor in the environment. It can be a pollutant, it can be microplastics, it can be oil, Mm. anything to organisms. And yeah, so after I finished my degree or my, my bachelor, I decided that I really wanted to specialize in marine biology. So yeah, that's what I did. But once again, I I decided that I wanted to go for toxicology. So I did my master's on that. And that's where I started to work on microplastics back then. Mm. It was uh, very early days for microplastics. So we knew uh, nothing about it at that time. But yeah, I really liked it. We were just getting started on that. So that's why I decided that I needed a kind of needed a PhD and to continue my work on that. And isn't it interesting that this you refer to microplastics as being a new thing, even though plastics have been around since the 1950s? So funny you picked up on that, mate. I, I, I like- yeah, because there seems to be this gaping hole of knowledge. Like we've been using the, this material for, what, now 70 years? And we're still referring to microplastics as a, an emerging contaminant. I mean- why? It's been around for 70 years. It's not, it's not new. Uh, we should know a little bit more about it. And I guess that's why there's a sort of pressing need for research because there's so many questions. Yeah, I agree. It's really funny because it has been around for ages, but it was actually only discovered in the 80s, 90s. And then from there, a couple of research started, but we now have, what, 20 years of microplastics research, and that's a lot to discover still. Um, mm. So there are still a lot of questions to be answered. And the reason for that is because microplastic is just, isn't just one thing. doesn't make sense. So it's just, it just not one pollutant. It's not just oil. So you have different kinds of plastics, shapes, sizes, uh, coming from everywhere, anywhere in the globe, producing lots of effects. We as researchers had to start from scratch, so developing methodologies, all of that. So I think that's why it's taking so long. It's just amazing. Like we're, we're lucky enough to have this podcast. We're, we're lucky enough to, to, to speak to people like yourself. And when you, when you think about it, like we've got this knowledge base, but yet it's, it's, it's not well funded. We're learning new things every day from Janice Brainy in the Utah desert dropping microplastic in the most pristine areas to, you know, speaking to fabric uh, doctors or, or university professors that are talking about 35% of microplastics that are entering 
our oceans via wastewater, you know, why is this? So like my first question to you tonight is, well, through your research, is it hard for you to stay positive about what we're doing? You know, like obviously you're stuck in, you know, London. <laughs> You know, you want to be in Australia, you're not allowed in. I'm I'm not allowed in Australia. I'm at home and he's, you know, like all this stuff going on. And then the research that you're doing, let, let's be honest, doesn't paint a pretty picture. So how do you sort of stay, you know, motivated and, and um, happy about going to work every day? Well, I guess that's what keeps you motivated. Like the reason that we don't know and there are still a lot to answer. I know that this sounds weird, but this is what we do every day. So we look at results. They look hopeless. Uh, We don't know what to do with that, but we just keep going. And I think one of the problems currently is that different labs are working on different things. And so if you go to a different country, probably that lab is working on a different matter and that's why we can't relate results or we can't compare or we can't discuss. So I think that's one of the problems. It's not about uh, particularly about funding or motivation. It's about different topics around the world. But obviously it has to be that way because we have a lot of things to do at once. Mm. But yeah, returning to your question, I think that's really it. Like we'll go back to that in a second, but this paper was a a really big thing, at least for us, at least Mm. for me, because it was, like I said previously, a new methodology. So Mm. yeah, Yeah. that's what keeps us motivated to keep Mm. going. And maybe in 10 years we can say, well, maybe there's nothing more to discover. <laughs> I, I think that's <laughs> unlikely. Uh, yeah, but that's certainly, unlikely. <laughs> uh, and you touched on the fact that your research has actually developed a, a, a fairly, I guess, a, a standardized methodology for assessing microplastic contamination in seafood. But I guess this is the key, the key crux of, I guess, the conversation is, is I'm really keen to get into the detail around this uh, paper that you've co-authored just recently. And I'll include a link to the paper in the show notes for people that are interested in it, but it was actually recently published in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal, and it was called Quantitative Analysis of Selected Plastics in High Commercial Value Australian Seafood by Pyrolysis Gas Chromatography Mass Spectrometry. So uh, I, I, I forgive people who can't remember or spell uh, that title, so I'll include a link yeah. to the show notes. But I guess first thing, so this is obviously at your PhD topic, but I actually saw a, a, a recent YouTube video of actually yourself and it was actually from 2018 where you actually give a bit of a I guess a preview to this research and you actually talk about sorry, sorry Brad stalks everyone so I know you're like, so for, the, for, for the listener for the listener you can just see what was happening there we're yeah, actually all on Zoom right now and yeah Look, he's a bit creepy. I've got a video on YouTube of me. And look, it's, it's all good. It was a video from 2018 where I think you're giving a sort of a, a, an introductory speech to your PhD. Uh, and you talk, you're giving an introduction to your PhD and you use the story of King Midas. Do you remember this? Oh, that video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, for, I know for, what you're talking about. Yeah. For people like Jeremy who haven't been a stalker like me and jumped on YouTube <laughs> and found this video, can you give a bit of a, a an overview of, how that story is relevant to your research because I found that really interesting. So it was the story of uh, King Midas. Basically, he had this gift of everything he touched uh, turned into gold. But his problem was that he touched food and the food obviously turned into gold as well. And so he couldn't eat anymore. And I just made the association at that time with plastic because it seems that everything we touch nowadays is made of plastic. And 
is not that our food is plastic, but it has plastic in it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started introducing the topic that time because I'm just um, studying plastic in seafood, but it has been found in the other foods like beer, uh, honey, salt, packaged meat, water, both bottled water and tap water. I think recently in fruit, so we can find plastic nearly everywhere and especially in the food that we are eating. So that's why mm. I thought that story was funny. It's extraordinary mm. what, what you're saying because, you know, part of this journey we're on about talking and sharing, you know, science and great data is we're learning. We're learning, mm-hmm. you know, about all these effects and, and, and going, well, what, you know, uh, there's more questions than any answers. And in plastic, and, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, plastic's given environmentalists a bit of a voice because up until plastic and everyone saw turtles in the oceans with straws in them and and, and, and the great Pacific garbage patch, you know, people just keep considering the ocean as a dumping ground, mm. going, oh, well, out of sight, out of mind. You know, plastic is is, is a, a contaminant, as you said, Brad, and it's emerging. Well, it's been around for so many years. Mm. Um, you know, how much little funding into to you know every little question we want to know, but it's actually for for people like Brad and I, and, and in our industry in, in stormwater, plastics is one thing. I mean, mm. like mm. Brad, it's probably the easiest thing to physically screen. Yeah. Out of taking out the receiving environment, we you know yeah. we're used to arguing over. You know how much um, heavy metal removal? What, mm. what percentage is, is mm. this and that and that? You know, and then plastic comes along and sort of shines a light on on how it gets out there. Mm. It, it just blows my mind. Yeah, and as a human, as a human race, we we are, I guess, storytellers, and we we are story listeners, and we relate to stories. So, as Jeremy indicated, the Joe public or, or layman may not readily understand the the intricacies of heavy metal contamination and nutrient concentrations in waterways, etc. But everyone understands plastic. Plastic is probably whilst it has a lot of benefits, like like gold, it also has a lot of negative consequences. And that's why I love the story around the King Midas is that, and and it's re- very relevant to the story of plastic in that essentially everything that we as a human race are touching, and even areas that we actually don't touch are actually becoming essentially plasticized. So there's a whole bunch of evidence to indicate that, yeah, they're finding uh, plastic contamination in the, on the top of the Pyrenees Mountains at the deepest, darkest depths of the ocean. And ultimately, often in the in the air we breathe and the food that we eat, and I think that your paper refers to the fact that we, as a human race, on average, we consume about five to six grams of plastic, uh, I think, a, a week. And I think I've heard the t- a description of uh, – the average person consumes a credit card worth of plastic every week, which is scary. But I guess the question then comes, okay, where does that plastic come from? And this is where essentially your researchers has asked this question is, okay, what is the microplastic contamination in our seafood? So I guess I'm really keen to sort of delve into now the science uh, around this PhD research that you've done. So can you give us some sort of, uh, I guess, description around what research methods you use? You know, how do you actually measure microplastics in seafood? What species did you just select? Where, where do the species come from, et cetera? Yeah, okay. So I'll just give a little bit of background. 
The reason why we decided to, let's say, develop this method was because until now, and I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying that until now, most of the techniques that detect microplastics in seafood are quite time consuming. And the reason for that is because uh, it involves uh, collecting the samples, obviously, and applying digestion method. So we break the tissue into a liquid and then we sort the particles individually one by one and we isolate them for analysis. And so what it means is that I could easily take two or three days to do one sample. So let's say to do an oyster. And another problem with that is that we could have the size of the plastic and the shape that it has. So it's it's a fiber, it's a fragment and the color and all of that. And then you have the the type of plastic at the end, but it doesn't give us a concentration. Does it make sense? So we could say we have five particles in an oyster. That's great, but in terms of the consumer experience and in terms of policy making, that doesn't really help mm. because we don't have a concentration. And once again, it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And so for this paper, we wanted to do something different. And so we knew that we wanted to do things essentially. So a straightforward method that could be used by any lab, if they have the equipment, obviously, that would take less time and give a mass-based concentration. And so that's what we did. So we selected five different species of seafood. So it was oysters, uh, sardines, squid, blue crabs, and king prawns. And we decided to process these samples the same way as a consumer would do. So we went to the fish shop, we bought the seafood, and we brought it to the lab. And we process only the parts that we eat. So that was a major difference from other studies as well, because most of the studies process the guts of the fish, for instance, Mm. because it's where the plastic goes, obviously. But for these, we didn't really care because that's not what we eat. Mm. So we process the, the flesh, so the muscle of the fish. Just for my own sake, you're actually yeah. assessing what you're digesting and is mm-hmm. within your own little crustacean or oyster. You're, you're, not, you're not looking solely where the plastic is. You're looking at the effects mm. coming through and therefore what is – What's the tissue and everything? I yeah. mean, that's amazing. That's yeah, really fo- amazing. Yeah, so specifically focusing on the part of the species yeah. that humans will eat. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's awesome. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In case of oysters, we eat them um, whole, so it mm. was the entire organism. Do you like oysters? Um, no, I'm not a big fan, I have to say. Do you, do you, eat, uh, do you eat a lot of seafood? Not yeah, anymore. I do eat a lot of seafood. <laughs> <laughs> do we seafood, really? Yeah, I have to work on that, I think. But, well, I'm, I'm from Portugal. I have to. Oh, my <laughs> I really God. Anyway, let's not talk about Portugal. I've, I've only been there once. It was the most amazing. Anyway. But, yeah, that's what you're saying. So we only chose what we eat for this study. And so we do the same process as other studies. So we digest the tissues as well because we need to break down. We need to remove the fat content. And then we filter it. So this is a very easy process. It takes one or two days for all of the samples that I did. And then we basically extract that filter in a very hot organic solvent. So it's called an accelerated extraction. And what it does is when it passes through the filters, it basically dissolves every plastic or at least the targeted plastics for this study. Uh, So it dissolves that plastic and then we have a solution with a liquid form of plastic. Does that make sense? So it's... um, Mm. Basically, everything that was in the sample is now in our liquid solution. Mm. So you're not specifically, sorry, just sorry, you're not actually specifically going and counting individual microplastic pieces. You're actually measuring the mass of microplastics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we should, just as a side note for the listener, we should define microplastics as, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Francisca, but it's essentially any plastic piece smaller than five millimeters. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So anything smaller than about a cigarette butt, you'd probably say. But in its case, it didn't really matter. Like uh, mm. we couldn't, we didn't see any bigger particles yeah. than that, but it was essentially microplastic. So mm. everything that was between five, let's put it that way. And in our case, the pore size of the filter. So it was 2.7 micrometers, mm. just for the record. So mm. everything in between that would be extracted. And that we just grab that solution and we insert in the instrument with a very long name. So the parallels is GCMS. And we get a mass of the targeted plastics that for this paper were only five mm. because it, it is currently what we can do uh, yeah. with this method. And just to clarify, where obviously there's the five different species, like uh, I think crabs, prawns, squids, et cetera. Where, where, obviously, you got them from a local fish market, I guess in Brisbane, but I'm guessing yeah. these species came from other parts of, you know, not, not, not just in Moreton Bay. Uh, they were from a few different areas. They were all local, so all from the east, yeah, east <laughs> coast of Australia. But we actually don't know where they are coming from. Right, uh, okay. We know, for instance, if they are wild or from aquaculture, they were all wild, yeah, except prawns. Uh, but yeah, we don't know where they're coming from. You know, that's a really interesting part about the research is your method is is new, but what you can't tell us or what we don't know is where is that actually coming from? Because, mm. you, you know, you, you, we don't have that information, which is anyway. 
as another side note, it's worth noting that the east coast of Australia, let's face it, is actually relatively clean waters. Uh, it's not Indonesia. It's not Hong Kong Harbour. Uh, the oh, east mate, coast of Australia what, what, what is what actually pretty clean. What, 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 you think Sydney Harbour's lovely? You go for no, no, no. I'm just break. saying generally speaking, if you look it, oh, at yeah, the, from Cape to the York world, to Tasmania, it's yeah, yeah. relatively you, clean. You, you, you would think that the majority of your sample set or data set would have come from semi-local fish. Hmm. Possibly, like, yeah. Well, you must have thought about it. I mean, sorry, I haven't read the paper, but, like, is that something you yeah. just choose to go, no, it's a, it's a independent, we don't know where it's coming from, or do we all buy it from the same? Sorry, I, I haven't read the paper, so can you, can, can you tell us how you did that? Yeah, that's a good point. So I have to be completely honest. So when we decided to start this study and – buy the seafood we didn't even think about it so we just wanted the samples but looking back it would be interesting to know exactly where they're coming from on the other hand that would raise a lot of problems after because we would be accusing you know these fishermen of that so we really don't want to do that Mm. um so we we know for sure that it's from that area of the planet but we don't know where uh but yeah definitely for for future records, I think we'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Hmm. But certainly from the study's perspective, it's, it's, it's essentially giving an insight as to the seafood microplastic contamination. Yeah. If you are living in Brisbane and just yeah. going to your local yeah. fish market uh, and recognising, yeah, there's some of that uh, produce is actually from uh, local sources such as Moreton Bay, but equally could uh, is, is likely to have come from other areas as well. But I, I'm keen to delve into the results yeah, now. Yeah, that so. is good, Dave. Yeah, what, what did you find, Francisca? We found that from all the species, essentially squid had the lowest plastic content, mm. which was not a surprise because, like I said, we remove most of the digestive contents and the head. And so every organ where the plastic can end up and basically with the squid, which, with the squid sorry, we just get the muscle. So I think this corroborates a little bit what we were expecting. Mm. And then uh, it was followed by prawns, oysters that had a relatively high, depending on what you define as high Mm. amount, then blue crabs, and finally sardines. And sardines are all around the media at the moment because uh, this was a surprising result. And we don't know how to explain it. So sardines had 2.9 milligram per gram of tissue. We tried to explain it as, so if you eat three sardines, assuming that you only eat the muscle, you're eating a grain of rice of plastic. Does it make sense? So if I eat three sardines, it's equivalent to eating a grain of rice of plastic. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Don't you love sardines in Portugal? I, I swear yeah, we I've, do. I've eaten a lot of we sardines do. in Portugal. Yeah, we. I think we are one of the countries of the world that eat more sardines per capita. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I knew you guys like sardines. So, <laughs> yeah. are you still eating sardines? Um. Well, um, I am. Oh, come but on. I, I, I'll go back to that in a minute, and yeah, I'll explain I'm, I'm why. Need to explore this a bit further. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so yeah. So this was uh, a surprising result, but it's uh, it's actually not that high if if we compare with contamination levels from other countries in the world. And I know I said we can't compare results because the units that we use are different, but there are more polluted areas. Mm. The only difference difference is that I think there's only one study 
on sardines and they are uh, tinned sardines. So mm. we can't really compare or uh, say if like a sardine from the Mediterranean Sea will have a lower amount or, you know. Uh, so yeah, this was a preliminary study and this result was a surprise. And the reason why I said I still eat sardines is because we don't know where this contamination is coming from. So it's not likely that it's coming from the water, although it can be, because we don't know yet if the microplastics, when they enter the organism, if they actually uh, enter the blood circulation and stay in the muscle. Does it make sense? So if they actually do the entire path until they reach the muscle. On the other hand, we processed the sardines with the skin on. So it was the muscle with the skin on without scales. And the reason for that is because we usually uh, put it on the grill, for instance, with the skin on. So we cook it that way. Hmm. And one thing that can easily happen is contamination from the external environment. And what I mean by this is that when you go to the fish shop and you buy any kind of fish, they put it in a plastic bag. Mm. Okay, and then you transport to your home and then you process the fish and you prepare it with plastic boards, with plastic utensils. I don't know, maybe you keep it for the next day in a plastic container. So what we are trying to see for future studies is if that plastic contamination is actually coming from our everyday life. So everything that we use that is made of plastic or if it's coming from the transport of fish from the boat to the fish shop or from the fish shop to our home. So that's what we don't know. And the reason why I still eat sardines is because I'm tr- I try to be super careful with the way I process that fish and I try to avoid any plastic materials, but it's obviously impossible because, you know, you have fisheries and then containers. And, yeah. I, I was literally just up uh, the road seeing an old friend of mine and I've, I've grown up with this this guy, he will never listen to this podcast. His name's Andrew Cochran. But we were talking about something very similar and we were talking about planting, you know, like planter boxes and the different types of wood you use to create a planter box to grow food in. And if you want a, you know, a planter box that's going to last you 30 or 40 years, what are the chemicals that's in that wood to make it last that long versus, you know, some natural woods? Like back here in New Zealand where we use macrocarpa, Look, it might bugger out in 10 years' time, but it's a natural wood. And what is the effect on on rain and, and, and what that seeps into the food that you now eat? You know, like Andrew Cochran's never listened to a podcast <laughs> in his life. But it's it's starting yeah. people are starting to think about it. You know, like what what you know, what's going on? What you know, what, what is this? So so let's just backtrack a little bit. And I'm keen to challenge some of your uh, conclusions as well, but uh that that I know you said that's a low level of plastic, like a grain of rice for every of plastic for every yeah, three sardines. Uh, look, from my perspective, yeah, it's not that's not low. I don't want any plastic entering me, and I, I I'd actually suggest we actually don't know what a safe level of plastic is to be consumed. I think the, the jury's definitely out on that one, and I, I'd suspect as much as we can keep it low, the, the, essentially the lower the better. From my perspective, that still seems like a, a high amount of plastic. Is that, do you disagree with that or I don't know? I don't disagree or agree at this point Mm. because we don't know what is safe. So we don't know what is high or what is low. We don't know the risk. I don't want any plastic in me. 
I understand that, but you can't avoid it at the moment. So more than eating, um, I think there are studies that say, say that the biggest source is what you breathe. Mm. So you can't really fight that at the moment. So that's why I say I can really answer that because we don't know what is safe or if, if there's a limit that's considered safe. Does it make sense? So mm, um, yeah, 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 totally. as a researcher, I can really say, well, stop eating seafood and this yeah. is dangerous. Yeah, I, I'd um, agree with that one. Because this is yeah. where I, I come in and talk about the old, the old precautionary principle. We've got a, we've got a, a chemical or a group of chemicals uh, in plastic. We know it's in the food that we eat, potentially the air we breathe, and sometimes the water we drink. We don't mm. know what the safe level is. So the precautionary principle would be to essentially try to reduce uh, or minimize our exposure where it's possible. And when it comes to seafood, recognizing that seafood does live in waters which are often have microplastic contamination, it makes sense from my perspective that if there's results showing that, yeah, there's microplastics in the seafood that makes its way to the consumer, I would be suggesting that as a precautionary approach to minimize my plastic consumption and associated impacts, I'd be trying to minimize my seafood consumption or at least be very mindful of uh, reducing my consumption of seafood that does have elevated levels of plastics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I completely understand that from the consumer perspective and even from my perspective, yeah, but I, I try to reduce animal intake mm. as much as possible, but mm. that's for for a different reason. Oh, but no, no. This, anyway. this is, we, we can talk about that because we love talking about Boring. reducing it. Boring. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I don't, I don't want to introduce that. No, 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 no. We love this conversation. Go a certain amount of time. We, uh, as a side note, Francisca, um, uh, w- myself and Jeremy often get involved in a discussion about veganism. So I'm a, I'm a passionate uh, vegan. Shout out to all the vegans out there. I know there's many uh, vegan listeners on our little uh, show. Uh, and, and one of the reasons uh, I talk about uh, reducing uh, the consumption of animal products is to essentially reduce my ex- exposure to pollution contamination. So often often uh, uh, animal products such as beef, seafood, et cetera, contain various levels of uh, known contaminants such as heavy metals, mercuries and, and PCBs and other potential carcinogens. And I just know if I eat low on the food chain, as in plants, I reduce my mm-hmm. exposure and subsequent consumption of those contaminants. And this is where I think seafood comes into the picture is that I know the, these marine species are swimming around in waters that probably do have elevated levels of microplastics uh, in them, even in the east coast of Australia, which is, is, which is relatively clean uh, compared to other parts of the world. But even there, uh, the products that are coming out of those waters, the seafood products, are showing detectable levels of microplastics. I'm just going to put my hand up now. Like, <laughs> oh, no, no, because I'm in the heartland of, 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 of rural New Zealand. You know, this is, you know, Wanaka, Queensland, Otago. You know, my cousins run cattle, run sheep, run, you know, deer. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if you think about it, if it was actually like there's going to be less microplastics in meat that's, you know, produced from up on a hill than there is in the sea? You know, mm. we just don't know this information. Brad, you might turn around and be a meat eater in 10 years' time. No, because not going to happen. No, but we're well, actually no, no, on the topic saying, of- we, we don't know. No, we don't. That's true. But uh, I think from a from a it's a re- reasonably 
it's a reasonable assumption to make that if I eat lower on the food chain, yeah, I uh, will mate, reduce you're, my- you're an, uh, you're an engineer. <laughs> you're an environmental engineer. You're all about risk. I totally agree. And it's not- No, no, no. no I totally yeah. understand. But this is the whole importance of having these chats. Is totally. going, well, yeah. geez, it makes you think, you know, like, and, you know, are you still eating sardines? Yeah, I am. But- Am I thinking about it a bit more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do, baby. I'm planting seeds and, uh, and getting people to think <laughs> about things. In particular, what they do, what the products that they consume in their day-to-day lives. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.